So we're starting our Questioning God series today. You're going to see it come up here, Questioning God. I know it's a little tough to read. It looks like Western and Go from here, if you're hard of sight. <laughs> so uh, these are the topics we're covering uh, over this series. We're starting today with uh, there can't just be one true religion. Then how could a good God allow suffering? Isn't Christianity restrictive and oppressive? Why is the church responsible for so much injustice? How can a loving God send people to hell? Hasn't science disproved Christianity? Isn't it foolish to trust the Bible? Does our culture still need its Christian roots? Lots of big topics. I'm excited for this series. We're going to be, today we're going to be in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. We'll get there in just a second. And I will be drawing some content uh, throughout, from today and throughout this series from Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. Just to set this up real quick, my observation is this, that everybody is, everybody is looking for something spiritual. Everybody believes, essentially, or wants to believe in something transcendent. Whether you're a child or an adult, or you just really dislike Popeye's chicken, it doesn't matter where you are on the spectrum, you are searching for something divine. And this, this, this search we have, it comes out in a few different ways. People who have even denounced God in very strong terms will find themselves praying for God and to God in times of trouble. We see it as well that science is trying to discover a theory of everything. They're trying to harmonize all the understanding of the universe together because we're, we're, we're drawn to meta-narratives. We're drawn to the highest good and the greatest ideal. We're indelibly religiously oriented. We can't get rid of that, that religious nature, that spiritual nature that we have. The idea that there is a divine being that loves you, that cares about you, that knows you, that wants you to be free from evil and is interested in your flourishing, that idea will never get old and it will continue to touch the depths of the human heart. Continue to touch the depths of the, of the human heart. But even with that, there are still great barriers that people face in coming to faith and believing in something spiritual and believing in specific spiritual claims. There are barriers, and these are some of the barriers that we're going through in this series. Now, our hope is that as we give good, coherent responses to these questions, that we would lower those barriers and so that people actually, the door is wide open for people to come into uh, the Christian faith. That's our hope. No one believes just because they have intellectual reasons to believe. It's still, there's still some intuition, there's still some faith that goes on, but we'll talk about that as we go through the series. This passage, passage today we're looking at in John 14 is a very famous passage from the life and ministry of Jesus, and uh, let's pray, and then uh, let's read this. Jesus, we thank you you're with us. We pray today that you would um, give us great insight, great wisdom, great understanding to face this big question, and to, as we go through this series, help us to Listen and help us to understand your word. Teach us from your word. And I pray for all those who have strong doubts, whether they would claim you or not, those inside or outside the Christian faith. I pray, come and show yourself to us, that we might have the faith to believe completely in you, in your words, and know the joy of knowing you. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. John, John 14, 1 through 7. says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again 
and will take you to myself, that where you may, that where you may be, uh, sorry, that where I am, you may be also, excuse me, verse 4. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is God's word. The first verse in this passage, Jesus says, do not let your heart or let not your hearts be troubled. It should be very obvious to us that the human heart is greatly troubled, greatly weighed down by things. We have anxieties, insecurities, fears. Uh, we're vulnerable. We're easily depressed by things. We've got all kind of worries in the world that we can think about. We've got, now we've got pandemics to worry about. We've got nuclear proliferation. We've got uh, damage to our environment. We've got toxins in our food supply. We've got asteroids we've got to worry about. And even more importantly, how good will the next Star Wars movie be? All kind of worries and concerns. But in all seriousness, and very personally, we have, you know, we have health concerns, right? We, we might have uh, financial troubles. We might have employment instability. We might have relational tensions, uh, either with family or in a romantic way or friends. Or we might have all these, we may have lost loved ones. That's happened to a lot of people during the pandemic. All kinds of trouble. What's Jesus' response to the trouble of life? So simple, so direct, unapologetic. Believe in God. Believe in God. This is the answer. Believe in God. And he goes further and he says, believe in me, talking about himself. Now, this is a very exclusive claim, and it gets more and more exclusive as you read on, as we read on. And Jesus says that there's only one way. He's the only way to know God. And that if you've seen Jesus, if you know Jesus, then you know God directly. It's quite the claim, quite an exclusive claim. How can Jesus have the goal to suggest? No, he's not suggesting it. He's claiming it. How can he have the goal to say this? Shouldn't he be more enlightened? Shouldn't he be more accommodating and say, well, there's equal value to all kinds of different worldviews and beliefs? Wouldn't that be a more appropriate response? Now, some people will concede and they'll say, look, you know, I, I can't believe myself, but I can see that there are benefits in religion. I can see it personally or, you know, communally or societal view of this that, yeah, there can be benefits to being part of a faith community or having belief in God. And studies show this. I mean, countless studies, social studies uh, show this, that people who uh, believe in God, have faith in God, and belong to a Christian community especially as well, uh, have better outcomes in their life. They tend to be happier, uh, tend to have uh, less issues, and tend to be more satisfied in their relationships. And all, there's, there's a whole myriad of, of things that, that show this. But he, even with those those studies and those things, it still is not enough, is it, to really push people across the line of faith. People might rationally say, well, yeah, I can see some benefits to it, but it's not really enough to get people across the line of faith. So before we answer, we are going to answer this big question today. There can't just be one true religion. But before we get there, I realize there's a more primary question that I just want to take a couple of minutes very quickly. I want to kind of shove this in here. Hopefully it fits. It may not fit. Maybe it's awkward, but we'll, we'll, we'll go with it. We'll try. There's a more primary question where, almost like Thomas, how can you have certainty? How can you know the future? Is there a God? Let's start there. Very quickly give you some insight into this. What does he say in verse 5? Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? 
This is, maybe you're somebody with strong doubts. Doubting Thomas, of course, comes from the Bible, if you didn't know that. Jesus welcomes all people with all doubts and all concerns and all skepticism. How can, how can we know the way? Let's talk about a really big clue that points to the existence of God. There's this, there's this idea that because you can't prove, so I'm going to throw some philosophy at you here, so hopefully this, this, this works for you today. Because you can't prove that your perceptions of reality aren't being manipulated, you cannot base any of your conclusions about life on reason alone. You have to use some intuition and some assumption to form your worldview. Because you can't prove that what you perceive is actually real. There's no way to test. There's no test that can be done to say, yes, it's actually what you're seeing is real. And so even if you have a non-spiritual view of the world, it's still based on intuition and assumption. It's what Christians, we call it faith, right? We, 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 we've always called it faith, uh, but in, in the world it's called intuition and assumption. Of course, social influence plays a big part in what people believe as well, right? Our social influence really affects, in a good way and sometimes in a bad way, uh, what we believe. But there's a giant clue that points to the existence of God, and that's the existence of mathematics. So just a couple of quick minutes on this. I've talked about this before, but some of you have heard this. But mathematics is, uh, yeah, we've got <laughs> mathematicians here. Really love, yeah, Aaron really loves this stuff, eats this up. Uh, so mathematics is not something that humanity has created. It's something that we discovered. It's already there. It would exist without us. And it's just a, a basic fact of the universe. The universe is essentially boils down to a programming language. And the idea is this, that, that mathematics is a, a tool and a helpful tool of communication. Although algebra didn't get the memo on that, but that's okay. So what it means is it means that before everything began, because it's, it's just a, a hard fact of the universe that, that, that there's a, this communication tool there, that, and where there is communication, where there's language, there's communication, where there's communication, there's intelligence. So before everything began, the foundation of everything, there is intelligence. Now, does that categorically, empirically prove that there's a God? No, because there's no scientific method that could ever prove that there's a God, because you can't prove your perceptions aren't being manipulated. But it's every, every conclusion you have about life, whether it's non-spiritual or spiritual, is based on assumption and intuition. Let me get back to the main point. I just want to intersect that there, in case anyone's struggling with a more foundational question of, can you actually be certain, sure, that there is a God? So back to our main question today. There can't just be one true religion. Are all religions equal or equally good. Could we say that religions that require child sacrifice, could we say that that's equal to other religions? The obvious answer has to be no. All religions can't be equal. They can't be the same in the same sense that not all Thanksgiving turkeys are equal. That was another joke. <laughs> it's not Thanksgiving time, so maybe that one didn't work. Anyone outside the Christian faith must face a very, very deep question. You have to ask yourself, are there people around the world doing things right now that I think are wrong? If the answer to that question is yes, which I assume it would be, that there are people doing things that you think are wrong, then we must admit, if I believe that, then I actually have a superior 
exclusive view of reality because I'm claiming that other people are doing things that they shouldn't be doing. And here's a fundamental problem with the, the accusation that it's dangerous or that it's narrow-minded or that it's ex exclusory to say that you alone have the truth, that you alone understand, that you alone have the right view of God. Here's the response to that, that question is that that claim itself is also an exclusive claim. That claim is canceled out. It cannot stand on its own logic. Let me explain this. Actually, non-Western cultures have no problem whatsoever saying that their beliefs are exclusive and that they are incompatible with other systems of belief. No problem whatsoever saying that. So the person, fundamentally, the person, or ironically, I should say, ironically, the person in our culture who might say something like, all paths lead to God, all religions lead to the same place, the person who says that, ironically, is doing exactly the same thing that they say can't be done. Let me illustrate it this way. The elephant. You've heard this, this illustration of the elephant. The, blind, the blindfolded or blind people approaching the elephant. Where somebody... So this is the idea that we all see parts of the truth. We don't see the whole picture. We see individual parts of the truth. So somebody, you know, these blind people approaching this elephant, one person grabs the, the tail and they say, oh, it's like a rope. Another person's just feeling the side of the elephant says, oh yeah, it's, it's, like a, it's like a wall. Somebody else, you know, playing with the ear, like, oh no, it's like a, an elephant's a fan. It's not a wall, it's a fan. Somebody else says, oh no, it's like a, feeling the leg, it's like, no, it's like a tree. Somebody feeling the tusk is like, no, it's like a, it's like a big spear. And then lastly, you know, the guy's holding the, the trunk and he's like, no, no, it's not, it's not that. It's, it's like a snake. An elephant's like a snake, right? This sounds reasonable the first time you hear it. You're like, oh, yeah, I guess. We're all, you have to admit, none of us see reality perfectly. None of us have all the answers. We have, everyone has to admit that. You can't, we're all blind to something. We don't see everything exactly perfectly. Even though Christians, we might have confidence in God's word and believe in absolute truth and believe that God has the truth, we still have to be humble enough to say we, we, we can't, you know, our minds are limited. We, we may not see it all properly. And so this on the surface, this sounds reasonable until you realize the fundamental problem with it. The, the perspective of the observer. Is the observer also blindfolded? The observer, looking at this, is playing a trick. And they're saying, I really hope this sinks in because this is so powerful once the penny drops, once it clicks. They're saying, we all see parts of it. But they don't mean that. They're actually saying, your perspective is wrong because you only see one little bit, and I am not blind, and I can see all the truth. My perspective is not part of the truth. My perspective is the whole truth, and you must believe in my exclusive view of the whole thing. By itself, it can, I hope that sinks in because it's so powerful once you realize that trick that gets played. Essentially, everybody claiming that they've got the truth, that they see the perspective, that they... We're denying the claims of other religions, but also we're canceling out. Based on its own logic, we're canceling out our own point by itself. Many world religions, in fact, all world religions, leaders, spiritual leaders and followers all around the world are very comfortable and very happy to say that they have different views about reality and about belief. There are irreconcilable and significant differences between religions. In verse 6 that we read here, Jesus says it emphatically. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through 
me. This is the exclusive claim of the Christian faith. What about other systems of belief? Buddhism. In, in, uh, Buddhists believe that there's no personal God. They don't believe in a personal God. Uh, they believe that you are one with the universe, that your individuality essentially will be kind of absorbed into uh, the universe, and that you should purge yourself of your desires. That's how you avoid, that's how you cope with suffering, is you essentially get rid of your desires. People are free to believe that. Many people believe that, but that's incompatible with the idea that you should pursue a fulfilling life, to actually pursue your passions and interests, and that your individual identity is valuable and should be preserved. Those are incompatible ideas. They don't work together at the same time. What about Islam? Islam teaches, a, a core tenet of Islam is the idea that when you get to heaven, you get a bunch of virgins for whatever purposes you might imagine. And that's an incompatible view with the, the dignity of, or human dignity, but also the value of women. Those are in, many people believe that, but those, there are incompatible views there. What about something like Hinduism? Baked into Hinduism is the idea of the caste system, where people are born at different levels, and you cannot switch between the levels, at least in this life you cannot. So you're always in whatever system that you're born into, and so the, the lower people, the ones basically at the bottom, they exist to serve the ones at the top. That idea, many people believe that idea, people are free to believe that idea, but that idea is inconsistent and irreconcilable with even the Christian idea of freedom, that God wants you to be free of coercion, free from oppression, free from evil. When we lump all religions together, when we say all paths lead to the same God, what we're doing is we're actually being pretty arrogant and pretty short-sighted, and we're actually changing the beliefs that religions do not claim to have themselves. We're imposing our beliefs on them, and we're, we're, we're kind of inventing, essentially, a new world religion, that they all, they all just basically teach the same thing. No, they don't all teach the same thing. Now, you don't have to spend your whole life studying and looking into religions in order to compare them and to decide which is best, which one works better, which one makes the most sense, which one is the most good. You don't have to do that. There's a, a shortcut way that I'm going to teach you. Any world view or, or system that you come across, you can apply this very simple test to it to, to ask yourself, should I believe this? Should this claim, should I, I trust this particular claim? And it's a very simple question you can ask. Is you can ask, how does this worldview respond to evil? How does this worldview respond to evil? How does it essentially view evil? Does it take evil seriously? Does it, have, um, does it have accountability built into it? Does it have consequences built into it? But also, does it have kind of redemption built into it? Kind of, essentially, you're asking, what kind of salvation does it have? How, how just is its justice and how gracious is its grace? That's essentially what you're asking. But how does it respond to evil? In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, the prophet says this. This is the litmus test. It says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. So you test a worldview by how it responds to evil. So let's go through these. We can, you can actually categorize. You can categorize all worldviews under three main categories. So you, you, we're taking some big, huge categories here. But the, essentially, there's the, uh, uh, the three main worldviews. We can put them up on the screen here. That You've got the naturalistic view of things, which is a non-spiritual view of the world, a pantheistic view, which is essentially God is the universe, or the universe is God, and a theistic view, which is God is an intelligent being, and polytheism would fit in under that. These are very broad brushstroke categories, but you can essentially test all these three to then get clarity on 
actually which ones are true and which ones aren't. Which ones should I trust? Which ones shouldn't I trust? Let's start with the first one here, naturalistic. What's the naturalistic view of evil? Well, in this worldview, obviously there is no God. So sometimes, many times, evil is denied as a category. There is no thing as evil is just a human value. It's not objectively true. And in this case, you can actually then moralize or I should say legalize immoral things, things that most people would say this is wrong. You can actually uh, legalize them. And in this worldview, even if you do accept a view of evil, you do say, yes, there, evil is a real thing. The only way it can be dealt with is through the state because there's no higher power. There's no higher power. And it's not a very comforting view. Obviously, people are free to believe it, and many people do believe that. It's not a very comforting view because there's no cosmic justice. There's no cosmic solution to evil. It's just what the state can do. And states that don't have proper checks and balances can be extremely corrupt. Even states with checks and balances can be extremely corrupt. And we're trusting in that system to solve the problem of evil. So when you think about the nation states, you think about the Nazis, you know, legalized murder, killed 11 million people. Even today, states like Iran and Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia are seemingly funding terrorism. The Chinese Communist Party as well, putting the, the Uyghurs in concentration camps, essentially, re-education re camps. That's happening today. In a naturalistic worldview, that's the only hope you have, is that states draw the lines of morality. And it's, I've got to tell you, it's not a very comforting system. It's not a, when, when you take God out of the equation, you have no moral anchor to tie you into a, a higher morality that you depend upon, that actually the populace believes in. Now it becomes, you move that, you change the locus of that to be in the state. So I think that's a very dissatisfying, very dystopian view of the world and leads to. And I think actually the, the naturalistic view of the world helps evil flourish all the more. That's my claim. That's my contention. What about a pantheistic view of the world? This is things like Buddhism, Jainism, or anything said by Oprah. This is the idea that you can't fully separate evil from good. They're inseparable. They're, to bring balance to the, to the, to the universe, you know, it's almost like it's a Star Wars kind of idea, right? That, that, that you have, there's always good in, mixed in with evil. It's the, it's the yin and the yang. And so in this worldview, essentially, we are, it doesn't matter how good or how evil we are, we're, we're absorbed into the universe. We lose our individuality, you lose our consciousness, we're absorbed into the universe. You never really deal with evil. There's no final solution to it. And I find that very unsatisfying. I think most people today would find, find that disturbing and unsatisfying. Also in this worldview, you have this idea oftentimes of, of reincarnation. This is the idea that, you know, you do something bad in this life, you're going to be punished for it in the next life. Problem is you don't know, you don't know you're being punished for the wrong thing you did in the previous life. You don't know you're suffering for that. And so it, 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 the incentives are, are kind of backwards. You're, you're essentially trapped in the cycle of I'm just doing bad things because I'm suffering all the time from the previous bad things I didn't know I was doing that I'm suffering from. And essentially, if I am able to get a higher awareness or reach some kind of state of consciousness that's higher up, once I graduate from this system of reincarnation, I get annihilated into the universe. So the, the, the whole incentive structure itself, I think, is backwards. And I think it doesn't take evil seriously. It softens evil because it says it's always there. You can never get rid of it. And then the incentives of why do good? Why, why actually do good if this is the end result? What about the theistic worldview? Well, I think this worldview is so much closer to reality. 
Because in the, so this would include things like uh, Hinduism, which Hinduism is complicated because some people would say it's uh, poly, uh, would say it's pantheistic, um, but I think it's probably better categorized as a theistic religion. Um, but essentially, you've got, you've got Hinduism, you've got uh, Islam as well in there. These religions tend to take evil more seriously. Also, the Christian faith as well tends to take uh, evil much more seriously. The weight of evil and the need to correct it. But the big difference, the big thing that sets Christianity apart, and this is something that C.S. Lewis talks about a lot, is um, the, the difference with how we view good works. So in all other theistic views where you have a personal God who holds people accountable, the, the way to salvation is through you've got to accumulate enough good works. And the big problem, so, so in one sense that sounds right, and, and, and that is kind of right, right, from a Christian worldview, but the, the, the downside to it is there's no scorecard. There's no scorecard. And no one can be properly be good. You can never be certain you're, you're good enough. You only get one shot. There's no reincarnation. You get one chance to do it. You never know how well you're doing. You never know if you've tipped the scales properly enough. And that's what sets, well, I'll talk about, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here. I want to talk, that's the big thing, the big difference with, with the Christian faith. But it's a view of good works. What about Islam? How does Islam as a religion respond to evil? Well, I think it's always fair to, because I, I don't want, I'm not here to bash other religions. I've already been point, you know, poking some holes in things. I know it's easy to poke, poke holes in things, and people will do that with the Christian faith. Hey, we're, that's what we're doing this series for. We're trying to poke holes uh, in, in the Christian faith and trying to give, give answers to this. Um, there are many, I don't want to say very, very clearly, there are many very good and well-meaning Muslims in the world, who believe, and there's a variety of beliefs amongst uh, uh, the Muslim population as well. So that, I think it's fairer. Let's examine the founders and the teachings of the faith, rather than the people, the followers, and the interpretations of each faith. So let's, let's look at Muhammad for a second here. Muhammad, unfortunately, as he grew in military prowess and, and power and influence, uh, he got to a point where his teachings really changed, and he actually taught that apostasy, leaving the faith, should be punishable by cutting off the fingertips and by beheading. And you can find that's in the Quran, that's not an obscure Islamic teaching, that's a central doctrine of uh, the majority of Muslims around the world would believe and adhere to that teaching. And that's in, you can find that in Surah chapter 8, verse 12 in the Quran. In, the, in contrast to that, Jesus, what does Jesus say in contrast to that in, in the Gospel of Matthew? Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In stark contrast, if you even, that includes people who are apostates, people who leave the faith. It's how Islam considers evil or responds to evil or perpetuates, you could even say, in some sense, evil. Now, contrary to the claims against the Christian faith, people will say, well, the, the Bible has all kind of terrible things in it. I just want to be very clear about this. The Bible is not in favor of genocide. It's not in favor of slavery. It's not in favor of polygamy or rape. You have to understand. You have to understand a few things about Scripture. You have to understand the nature of war. You have to understand corrupt societies. You have to understand uh, redemptive servitude. You have to understand Hebrew language and culture to actually properly understand some of those things that are happening in the Bible. I don't have time. I'm opening up a bit of a can of worms there. I don't have time to get into all of those different things. But I'd love to talk more and get into some of those things uh, at some other time. But the idea of, of how Islam responds to evil, I would say by commanding its followers to behead those who are apostates, that is commanding evil. And that's how I would test that faith based on the teaching of the founder and 
their text, the Quran itself. Now, we want, we want to be fair. Week four of this series, February 6th, why is the church responsible for so much injustice? Here's what we have to do is you have to understand there's a big difference between the teachings of a faith and then the actions of people who claim to have that faith. Those are two different things. They're two different things. People can use something good to justify something bad. That happens all the time. They can twist it and use something good to justify something bad. But also, we can see this. We can see that bad people can make justifications to do bad things, saying that it's good. And so up to our judgment to test those things and to, to figure out what's right and what's wrong, what's good, what's bad in that. Now, some will even say, Matt, you're cherry-picking here. You're, just, you're, you're, you're picking on the easy things here. This is, this is not, you know, all religions have their quirky parts and their bad parts, and you just have to kind of look past that and reform those things. And you have to get to the central teachings. And the, the idea of the golden rule, right, the golden rule, all religions have this idea of this golden rule. And you just, they all teach, essentially, they all still just teach the same Thing and you're just cherry picking these little side issues here. Well, let's look at the, the golden rule and examine it because people will say, well, actually, Jesus copied that, didn't Jesus? Didn't that exist before Jesus? The highest moral code that we have, the highest moral code that we have, uh, comes from this, this idea in the Bible, right? Love your neighbor uh, as yourself, or love your dog as yourself. Some people uh, might like to think of it. The idea that this, 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 this basic idea that the, the, the moral code, that, that you, should, you should love people based on how you love yourself. The assumption is that you care about yourself and you honor yourself and you want people to treat you well. That's how you should treat other people. So about 400 to 500 years before Jesus, Confucius did say something like this. Confucius said this. It's going to come up any second right now. Here we go. Confucius, this is the teachings of Confucius, he says, it's very similar to the, the golden rule of Jesus. It says, do not do to others what you do not want them to do to you. Hinduism teaches this. This is the sum of duty. Do not do to others what would cause pain if done to you. And then Buddhism teaches, hurt not others in ways that you yourself would find hurtful. And that's in comparison to the golden rule that we had back up. You can put the Luke 6 one back up there, Luke 6.31. This is the teaching of Jesus and as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Now, the claim is that Jesus stole this. This is borrowed. This is, and you know, definitely with, with Confucius, that like, he existed before Jesus, and he says something very similar. So is Jesus copying this? The categorical answer is no. Jesus is not copying this. This teaching existed as early as uh, 1450 BC in the writings of Leviticus in the Old Testament. So when Jesus teaches this in the Gospels, when he teaches love your neighbor as yourself or what you wish others would do to you, you do to them, when he's teaching this, he's just repeating what God the Son is just repeating what God the Father has been teaching from the very beginning. So these other religious leaders like Confucius and others are either getting it from Leviticus, which came first, Judaism wins on, uh, scores a point on that one, Get, getting it from the Old Testament, or, or if, they, if they're not influenced by that, then we can assume, safely assume, that God has put this moral code in creation so that it could be discovered and lived out, because God wants people to live this way. And so it should not be a surprise to us that people would discover and come across the highest moral law that you could have, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. 
should be no surprise to us that it would pop up in God's creation all over the place, the place that people would discover it and understand it. But we understand the origin of it is the Bible. Jesus isn't copying it from anywhere else. It's from Scripture, from the Bible. But there's something profoundly different about Jesus' teaching of this and about the Bible's version of the golden rule. If you notice, all the other ones are passive. They're passive. They say things like, don't do to others and hurt not and harm not. They're passive. They're saying, just make sure you don't do anything bad to anyone. Jesus's is flipped. His is proactive. His is proactive. Don't miss. This is so significant. The, di the difference is so significant. Don't miss the difference here. This is the only thing that can stop evil in its tracks. This is what we call the grace of God, the unconditional love of God, that it's not just enough to say, just don't do bad things to if you don't want If you don't want someone to do a bad thing to you, then just make sure you don't do it to them. It's not enough to stop the evil in the world. It's not enough to bring the gospel to the world. It's not enough for, for, to, to live to God's standards in the world. You have to proactively go out ahead of time and do good to others who don't deserve it, who don't deserve it. This is the gospel message of the Bible. This is the good news of the message of Jesus, is that God loves us so much that he proactively came into our lives and forgave us of our sins when we didn't want him, when we cursed his name, when we weren't interested in him. That's what he did for us. That's what he did for us. This is the grace of Jesus. This is the only thing that can really stop evil in its tracks in the world is that proactive love. Go into the world and love people the way you want to be loved. Don't just passively do it. Proactively do it. This gives us confidence in the message of Jesus. This gives us confidence in the promise of Jesus. Because in verse 2, he says here, in this passage that we read, in verse 2, he says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And he says this to doubting Thomas. He says this to people who don't even understand him and don't really truly believe in him or people that even deny him. Jesus, that's the grace of Jesus. He doesn't, that's, that's why good works will never save you. Enough good, you accumulate all the good works, it doesn't matter. It's never enough to undo the evil, to undo the evil of the human heart. It's never enough. It has to be a free gift of grace. A free gift of grace. Understand this, that God does not delight in evil. And that's one of the things that sets Christianity apart is that God hates evil and he's working against evil and if we want to be like God we need to hate evil in the same way that he hates evil and we have to understand this that he made the greatest sacrifice to deal with our evil 2,000 years ago God made a great exchange where he poured out his righteousness Jesus was nailed to a cross his blood shed on that Roman cross and that righteousness that was given up is in exchange in exchange for our sin that now he take he took on our curse our evil and gives us his righteousness not by our good works but by his good works this is what sets the christian faith apart from all other systems of belief it's the only thing that can transform you and change you the state cannot reform you to love your neighbor in the naturalistic worldview it doesn't work in the pantheistic worldview it doesn't work in all other theistic worldviews it doesn't work it only works in the christian faith this is the message of jesus yes jesus is exclusive He's very exclusive. In fact, probably one of the most exclusive out there. He's unapologetic about it, though. But you know what? Everyone else is pretty much exclusive, too. I think we've got to be honest about that. Everybody's claims are exclusive. But I, I think this. I think Jesus' teaching is the most attractive, the most wonderful. I think it takes evil seriously 
It, it, it keeps us accountable for it. It deals with our evil, but it also has the way to redeem us and to transform us and to save us from our evil. This is the good news of the grace of Jesus. We need to respond today. We need to respond. How do you need to respond today? Do you need prayer? Do you need to give your life to Jesus? Do you need to be baptized? We have baptisms happening on January 30th. We'd love to baptize you. Do you, need, you want to join a small group? You want to give today? You want to get more involved at Trinity? Whatever it is, please respond. The way you can do that is what Natalie talked about during announcements. You can text the word ENJOY to 94000, and uh, you can respond that way. Let's go ahead and worship Jesus today.